Let's turn to Ephesians, please, which you all know is a letter to Laodicea, according to Colossians 4.16. Before we get started today, we have, during the month of May, which will start, I think, pretty soon, tomorrow, we're going to be collecting, in the spirit of 1 John 3.17, you can look that up. We're going to be collecting non-perishable food and paper products, once again, for the New Kensington Salvation Army, and that includes canned fruit and vegetables, pasta, cereal, canned meat, rice, peanut butter and jelly, etc. And also paper towels, toilet paper, diapers, all kinds of things like that, material goods, and non-perishable. When you think of that, just think of the resurrection body, non-perishable, and Let's, let's be very zealous about this good work because it's something God has prepared for us to walk in and it's a privilege, of course. So, Greg and Suze, are you still married? Okay, that, your first wedding service took, Pastor Henry. It took, they're still here. Recently, I heard something that I thought it really kind of struck me because I'm always in the, in the search for fresh, new, living metaphors, especially, as Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and life. There's something fresh and new. And one of the old metaphors that they die after a while. You use them so much, they die after a while. Like the one called the cutting edge. We're on the cutting edge of something, the cutting edge of something. And you hear the cutting edge until the metaphor dies. It dies. So I like the bleeding edge. That's my new, the new metaphor I really like. The bleeding edge. We are on the bleeding edge of a forward line of advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which emphasizes his fidelity. It's God's integrity through the fidelity of his Messiah. And it is not dependent on human faith. It's a divine progressive forward line and we are on that bleeding edge a second little metaphor that hit me recently came from the manager of the pirates clint hurdle who is a man of faith also but he said this and then the announcers are starting to use it and i hope it doesn't die as a metaphor because i like it he said what we need is some slow heartbeats out there speaking of the guys on the field and i took that to mean People who have quiet, professional confidence. Quiet confidence. Slow heartbeat. That's a great metaphor for what we require. You know why we have a slow heartbeat? Because our quiet confidence comes from a shared existence with Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of imitation as if we're somebody and he's somebody else and he went before us and we're following him, so let's imitate his actions. Our imitation comes from a shared existence with him and therefore it ends up being a manifestation of the ongoing living and life of Jesus Christ. And that's the shared existence. These are the great and precious promises being realized how we are partakers now of a divine nature. Slow heartbeat, Isaiah 30 and verse 15, in quiet confidence, we find our strength. 
It was the quiet confidence that Jesus Christ stood on the pavement with in front of Pilate, and it shook Pontius Pilate because of his quiet confidence. He tried to shake him by saying, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or to let you go? And Jesus said from his quiet confidence, you have no authority whatsoever unless it's given to you by my father, my father in heaven. And the father in heaven authorized Pontius Pilate to authorize the crucifixion of his son. This is the, our general, our commander-in-chief, our Lord Jesus Christ, our king. He's gone before us, and it's his death in this battle that we participate in. For I was crucified with Christ, says Paul, whom we're calling on in this message, this series. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I who live. Think of that but Christ who lives in me. It's his slow heartbeat. It's the, the slow heartbeat, the quiet confidence of the Son of God beating in our chest. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. It's a faithfulness that continues in a forward line of troops, a forward line. For whether you know it or not, we're engaged, and I mean fully engaged, and I mean vigorously engaged in the apocalyptic war of the end times, the eschatological apocalyptic war. And that war has to do with what Paul called the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is all about the age that's past, that's passing away, the evil age, the present evil age. The flesh isn't the lower nature of man in Galatians, but it's a supranatural power. It's a suprahuman power called the impulsive desire of the flesh. And it wages war, not against us, but against the spirit. Because the spirit is all about the new creation and the age that has come with Jesus Christ. And we are engaged in this. The flesh wars against the spirit, another suprahuman, but this time divine and ultimate power. And if you walk by the spirit, you will not fulfill the impulsive desire of the flesh. But you will allow for a production in you of love, joy, peace. The slow heartbeat. What we need is people with slow heartbeats out there. Advancing the gospel. And speaking of the bleeding edge, I like what Isaiah 48 says. Cursed is the pastor or the shepherd whose sword doesn't draw blood. In other words, we're called as communicators and the whole spectrum of communicative gifts in the church age goes from apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. The whole communicative realm of gifts is a forward line of troops, and our sword is to draw blood. That means we're engaged in a real battle. The blood that we cause comes from the flesh. It's an attack on the present age. The line of direction is always from God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, 
which Paul proclaims in all of his epistles is nothing short of a redemptive divine invasion into creation and into all humanity to deliver creation from its present desperation and to deliver the desperate children of Adam from their desperate plight. And once we are delivered, and as I mentioned last week, and I'll say it again, God is not, according to the used saying, a gentleman. He doesn't violate your free volition. God is not. That's not true. Because God is not gentle like a man. God is not a gentleman like men are gentlemen. He precisely invades the human will because the human will is enslaved. It's enslaved to the flesh. It's enslaved to sin. It's enslaved to death and the fear of death. So God does not act like a gentleman around us. He invades the very orb or realm or sphere of our will. So that while we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive in Christ. He didn't ask your permission. And that's why the important thing that we have been discovering, and this is a bloody battle, and it's fought again today. Our salvation and our justification, as it's often called, or our rectification, which is really our deliverance, is not rooted in our faith, but in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, his faithful death on the battlefield. For as... Lou Martin said, and incidentally, Lou Martin, I was mentioning earlier today, Lou Martin, who wrote the best commentary I've ever read on Galatians, views it as an apocalypse. He views Paul's gospel as an apocalypse. And I didn't even know this book existed before I started the series, Can All of Paul's Epistles Be Viewed as an Apocalypse of Jesus Christ? More specifically, can they be viewed as a revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance? And the answer is shaping up to be in the affirmative. The answer to that is basically shaping right now. And we're also engaged in a battle, and it's a bleeding edge battle, because we're taking the, we're building a bridge, and we see this bridge constructed in Paul, and that's why we have to engage the text. If God's grace is unconditional, And it does not have to meet a precondition in man, which would violate the forward line of direction of God. It's always God's forward line of direction in redemption and in salvation. And so if that grace is unconditional, then is it also universal? Or do we have to back up into an inadequate Calvinism in which God says, yes, my grace is irresistible. It's the grace of my son, and I, my election is unconditional. My grace is irresistible, but I only do this for a few people and leave the rest to their own destiny called hell or eternal damnation. Or is that faulty Calvinism being replaced today by a bridge from unconditional grace to universal grace? I've already seen the bridge constructed, but it's my job to build it in front of you, and I'll be doing that in the next Several messages, I think. But it's important that we understand that the gospel involves a divine invasion into creation with a view to its deliverance from its present status, from its present desperation, its desperate plight. For all creation is screaming out, says Paul, not just groaning, screaming as if in birth pangs. 
to be delivered for uh, partaking in the liberation or the glorious liberty of the children of God. All creation, not just humanity, but all creation. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was his participation in the desperation of creation. Let me say that again, because I just thought of it, actually. When Jesus Christ was on the cross and cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he was saying, he was actually partaking in, participating in the desperation of a screaming creation. For it was a scream. It was a roaring, as Psalm 22, 1 says when he cried that out. It was his participation in the desperation of creation, including mankind. Because Paul said, we too groan in this, this body of death, this evil age. Galatians 1, 4 is a remarkable and astonishing declaration of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. That was already the creedal formula that was being read in the churches. That was already the creed being read in the churches and still is read and should be preached in the churches. But Paul says Jesus Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. So Paul's gospel is all about the shattering of the old age and the entrance, the break-in and the breakthrough of the new creation in Jesus Christ through his incarnation and his death. And therefore, the flesh is the power of the old creation, and the spirit is the power of the new creation. And if anyone is in Christ, there's the new creation. Because new creation is being in Christ. I don't live, but Christ lives in me, and yet I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God that continues in me. So God is not a gentleman like a man is a gentleman. He's gentle in his invasion of your will. He's gentle, as David said, his gentleness has made me great. God didn't ask permission of David, can I make you great? He just made him great. God didn't ask permission, can I make you alive with Christ? I'd say in my flesh and in in my old nature, no, I like my own life, thank you. And I'm comfortable in my own misery, thank you. God is an invader of the human orb, and that includes the human will. And so... It is now a matter, salvation is not a matter of your will, it's a matter of God's will. And even Jesus, representing all humankind, said, not my will, as a representative of all humankind, but your will, Father, be done, which was also Jesus Christ's will as God. So the gospel of Paul, the gospel that Paul proclaims throughout all of his epistles, is about a radical change of ages, Second Peter says this in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, the writer says, even as our beloved brother Paul in all of his epistles speaks of these things. Well, what are the things that he speaks of? If you go back to verse 10, it's the shattering end of the old creation with all of its elements. It's the shattering end of the evil age. And it's the beginning of a new creation where deliverance is the way of things. Salvation is the way of things. 
He speaks of the patience of the Lord, which is salvation in 2 Peter 3.15. The patience of the Lord is the endurance of the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ, which is salvation. Salvation for who? For all that God is not willing to perish. And that's all in 2 Peter 3.8.9. Paul is writing about all these things. And so his epistles, all of them put together in 2 Peter 3.15, which in 3.16 he says, some people detract and distort from it. They detract from Paul. They distort Paul. And some domesticate him. They want to domesticate Paul like the reformers did. Justification by your faith which leaves an open question just about how much involvement is Jesus Christ have in your salvation, if it's your faith. It is faith, but it's elicited by the message about Christ. Faith is part of the divine forward line. It isn't all of a sudden God invading the realm of creation to deliver and redeem and liberate and transform it, but then all of a sudden he stops up short and says, now you take over with your faith. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is part of the forward divine line of God's invasion of creation with the view of liberating that creation. I started to say Lou Martin, whom I've been studying, his mentor for 40 years was Ernst Kasemann. That's K-A-S-E-M-A-N-N. Ernst Kasemann was kind of like the anti-Bullinger of his time. Bullinger tried to deconstruct Paul. He tried to deconstruct the New Testament. Kasemann came forward with a remarkable understanding of the gospel, and it's from him that I take the term saving significance. He's the one that coined the term the saving significance of Jesus Christ. From another German scholar, Wolfhart Pannenberg, I heard the word universal significance of Jesus Christ. So brilliant scholar that I am, I said one plus one equals two, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Wasn't that brilliant? That was, you know, I just want you to know I'm a brilliant scholar. Ha, ha, ha. But Ernst Kosman wasn't one of those guys stuck in the tower of the academic world because before he was a theologian, he was a soldier, then he was a prisoner of war, and then he was the pastor of a group of coal miners for 10 years. And he had to gut out the gospel, and they didn't always agree with him, so he had kind of a combative spirit to him. Then he became a theologian. Then Lou Martin, young Lou Martin in 1956, gets sent over there on a, on a grant to study with, of all people, Ernst Kosman for a year. And then they became friends for 40 years. Kosman was the one who was also the mentor of another guy you might have heard of before named Jürgen Moltmann. And Kosman was the one that put into the head of Martin and others that this gospel is a divine invasion. I would add that to that, that it's a divine invasion through two divine missions. The gospel involves a divine invasion through two divine missions. The first divine mission, God sent his son found right in the heart of Galatians. And Professor Sadar made this very clear in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. Right there, we have the heart of Galatians. Galatians 4, 3 to 5. But in the heart of the heart of Galatians, in the heart of the heart is Galatians 4, 4. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born under the law. That means that Jesus Christ 
had to experience the human experience, including humanity's enslavement to the law. The law is going to be shown by Paul in Galatians as an enslaving thing and as a cursing thing. And that Jesus Christ was born under the law in order to redeem us from the curse of the law and grant us the blessing that he promised to Abraham. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is found, it was preached in advance to Abraham, according to Galatians 3.8. And what did the gospel say? In you, Abraham, and in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. All humanity will be blessed in you, Abraham, but not in you, but in your seed. And Paul explains that the seed is Christ. And in Christ, all will be made alive. That's all without exception. And that's the gospel. The very gospel preached to Abraham was in the form of a promise. And Paul then said the law came 430 years later. But that no more changes the promise than a codicil added to a man's last will and testament changes the will and testament of that man. Furthermore, the the promise is to Abraham and to his seed. So Paul talks about Abraham to take the reader's attention away from Abraham and place it on Christ. The false teachers in Galatia tried to focus their attention on Abraham and that you are children of Abraham because Abraham fulfilled a covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17, 8. And Paul says, let's go beyond the circumcision. Let's go back further in history and see that Abraham demonstrated a shared participation in Messiah's faithfulness 13 years before he was circumcised. You want to talk about the law and obedience to the law? Let's go 430 years before the law to a promise that wasn't in any way affected by the law. The promise that in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. There's a tinge of universality in that gospel, isn't there? If the gospel was proclaimed in a promise, and the promise has to do with all the nations being blessed in the seed of Abraham, who is Christ, we already have kind of the flavor of what we might call, shocking word, universal. So Paul grasps this gospel in hand. In the 21st century, Some of us have grasped this gospel, but we realize that this gospel is resisted. And we realize that the probably the heart of its resistance is right within a thing called the church sometimes. Now, what is the church? What is the real church? The real church is the vanguard of. Of this gospel. It's the, f- the human front line of a divine course of action because it's God in us, both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. The church is called the body of Jesus Christ because it's a shared existence with Jesus Christ. It isn't me sitting down to figure out what Jesus would do. It's me in shared existence with Christ and Christ living in me. If Christ is living in you, you don't have to sit down and brood over what you think he would do in that situation. He's already doing it. And he's producing in you, not tachycardia, a rapid heartbeat, but a slow heartbeat. 
Now, I had a, a friend of mine say recently, he likes when I preach because his heart rate goes up. And I said, well, all right. But most of the time, we want a slow heartbeat. But it's okay if our heart goes up if we're in the heat of the enthusiasm and the heat of the battle, the heat of the action. So it's a matter of divine invasion, but I would add to through two divine missions. The second divine mission is in Galatians 4, 6. And God has sent his spirit into our hearts, the spirit of the Son, not just any spirit, the spirit of his son causing us to cry out with our lips, Abba, Father. In other words, causing us to speak with the mouth of the son of God, causing us to have a shared existence with Jesus Christ. And that's what the the church is. The church is on a forward line of advance. It's on the bleeding edge because the forerunner bled right at the heart of this gospel as he advanced it as he died on the cross and then was resurrected elevated and enthroned and he sits now at the right hand of the father if you peeled away every sight veil you would see the risen glorified Jesus Christ a human being at the right hand of the majesty of God on high who shares in divinity and humanity who is God and who is man in one person and you would see all of your salvation in that one person and you would thank God that God wasn't a gentleman like a man but a gentleman like God a gentle God who invaded the orb of your resisting and enslaved volition to free you it's like he came into a camp of slaves and cut their chains A liberator of slaves comes in and cuts the chains and says, come on with me. He doesn't say, I would like your permission to deliver you from slavery. You know why? Because some would want to stay there. Some would want to stay in slavery. Just like the Israelites, as Brian's message is brought up. The Israelites in the wilderness long to be back in Egypt. They long for the comfort of slavery. If it was up to me, I wouldn't be saved today. Because if it was up to me, I'd be still trying to believe with enough belief that I could be sure was enough for God to justify. But we're not justified by our faith. We're justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which continues in the church. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me and the life that I live. And I do live. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Why? Because the faithfulness of the Son of God, by which he endured the death of the cross, still continues in the church in a shared existence with Messiah. You should never think down on yourself again, because yours is a shared existence of Christ. To recriminate yourself is to recriminate Christ, whose existence you share. When did that happen? Well, when I was dead in trespasses and sins, God made me alive with Christ. Not just made me alive. It doesn't say he made us alive. It says he made us alive together with Christ. We have a shared life, a shared existence. Ours is not an imitation. What would Jesus do? I'm over here having no shared existence with Christ. There's Christ over there, a figure who lived in history, the historical Jesus, they like to call him, on Nat Geo and the Discovery Channel. But he lived over there. Now, I'm going to do my best to imitate what I think he would have done 
in his time. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is the shared existence with Christ. It's a shared life with Christ. It's a sharing in his dying and death. And it is a manifestation of what Paul called the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies. Right in this body of death, right in this evil age, we demonstrate the life, the risen life of Jesus Christ in a new creation. We walk by the Spirit. And we better. Because whether you know it or not, you're engaged in a war. The flesh is warring. And it says the desire of the flesh. It's an impulsive desire. It is not a flesh and blood thing. It's a supernatural enslaving power that has control over all of the human race. And sometimes that impulsive desire leads to religious impulse in which people begin to be religious in the, in the false sense of the word and idolatrous. They start to focus their attention on things that are not gods and they end up in a worshipful attentiveness toward those things or those people or that institution. What is the church there for? It's the vanguard the forward line of human troops in a divine invasion of all creation. Speaking of Lou Martin, J. Lewis Martin, he said, when he wrote this book, I just ordered, it's out of print, so I have to wait for it, Theological Issues in the Letters of Paul. He said, quote, the Uncontingent, that means it has no contingency in human beings. Prevenient, that means a grace that precedes human action, a divine grace that precedes human action. The uncontingent, prevenient, invading nature of God's grace, he said, shows God to be the powerful and victorious advocate who is intent on the liberation of the entire race of human beings. That's exactly what the gospel is. Showing God to be our advocate. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. God sent his son is the heart of John's gospel in 317 as it's the heart of the heart of Paul's gospel. God sent his son. To redeem us from the curse of the law used to be interpreted as us being Jews who were under the law. But we're going to show you that that word us means all humanity. To redeem all humanity from the curse of the law. Because whether you were under the law as a Jew or under the not law as a Gentile, you were under the curse pronounced by the law on all of humanity. Jesus Christ became the curse... And the scripture says, very tellingly, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. Jesus Christ became a curse to deliver us, that's all humanity, from the curse of the law and to bring us the blessing of Abraham, which is what? The being in Christ, being blessed in Abraham's seed, which is Christ. Now, I've been fighting this battle out in some passages where it's not obvious that Paul's a universalist or is committed to this universally redemptive intention of God. I haven't even touched yet in this series, really. I haven't even really hardly touched yet the passages where Paul is obviously stating the universal in God's plan. 
And one of those is Ephesians, or the letter to Laodicea, chapter 1. We might turn there today if I feel like it, but because right now my feelings are a shared intention with Jesus Christ. So you see, that happens. This invading grace, he also said in the same book, Martin and Theological Issues in the Gospels of Paul, or the Epistles of Paul, he said, this, quote, invading grace is the power that Paul saw in the cross, the event in which the name Emmanuel was enacted. Emmanuel means God with us. When Christ was incarnate, that is Emmanuel, God with us. The way that he revealed God with us was not just in his teaching and his living, his life, his healings, his miracles, but the ultimate enactment of Emmanuel, God with us, is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, a crucified God. I'm aware when I speak to you, says Paul even said this, and I follow his lead, we speak in Christ in the presence of God. When we preach the word of God, when we teach the word of God, when a pastor teaches a congregation, and this is fellowship, fellowship in the messianic community, in the churches where the spirit is speaking to the churches, we must be aware as we speak that we are in the presence of God and that we are in a crucified Messiah. We are in Christ and we're speaking or otherwise, says 2 Corinthians 2.17, we're just like peddlers of the word. We're, we're hucksters. We're selling a product that we really don't have any kind of investment in. We just want to make money from it. We are just hucksters, peddlers. And Paul says we are not like the majority who are peddlers of the word. But we speak in Christ in the presence of God. In the awareness of the presence of the majesty of God the Father. In the awareness of the presence of the spirit of the Lord where there is freedom and that's what this freedom is all about we all with open face behold as in a glass as in a mirror the glory of the lord and we are being transformed into that image not by human action but by a divine action by a slow heartbeat on our behalf we're just looking we're just gazing god's transforming us and that's by the spirit of the lord therefore The gospel is not a matter of our free will choosing to be justified. It's a matter of our will being freed at the moment God invades our lives with his grace. And so when I'm asked the question, are there going to be rewards for Christians? Well, there must be because the scripture says there's going to be rewards for Christians. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, especially communicative gifts are in view there, but it means all, all Christians. No other foundation can be laid in terms of salvation, but that which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. But every man ought to be careful about how he builds on that foundation. And some use faulty materials, others use other kind of faulty materials. Some use the proper material to build. And those who build with the false materials are going to have their work tested by fire and they'll suffer loss. But he who has that test and what he built on remains, the the superstructure that he built on the foundation remains, he shall receive a reward. The person who has the loss of all, all of his production shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He's on a rocking chair on the foundation, as it were. But the reason that there is reward for Christians 
and there is a rewardability and some are rewarded and some are not is because God has liberated our will. And if we function in the liberated will, instead of perishing in Adam's resistance, the things that we do are sowing to the spirit and sowing to the spirit. We will reap a harvest from that's related to eternal life as if Galatians six, eight says, so yes, there's rewards, but God doesn't reward us for things we do in our enslaved will in Adam. That's religion. God rewards us for what we do in our liberated will in Christ. It was to into the realm of freedom that Christ freed you and liberated you and emancipated you. Therefore, don't be enslaved again with a yoke of slavery, whether it's to the law to the present age, to your peer group, or to the media. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The gospel is a divine invasion through two divine missions, and we are caught up in those divine missions. It isn't human beings forwarding the gospel. It's God forwarding the gospel through human beings who have a shared existence with his risen son who identify with his crucifixion as far as the strength that they have in the old ontology of Adam and who live in a shared participation with the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Faith is important, but it's a shared fidelity of the Messiah that God gifts us with. It's not the means or the source of justification like many of the reformers taught, which domesticated Paul's gospel. There's people that will attack him viciously. This week I said, even in fiction, Hannibal Lecter, while he was removing someone's head and eating their brains, of course, this shows you that you want to watch who your critics are. He's telling him that Paul, the apostle Paul, hated women. So much for a cannibal's interpretation. And that's why I said to Hannibal the cannibal, I say in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another... Be careful that you're not all eaten up by each other. That's what happens to Christians who remain in the Adamic ontology. They look religious. They look and smell like Christians, but they're still trying to do things in the energy of the flesh, and they end up doing the works of the flesh that are manifested in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, all the works that show that such a community cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the results of an Adamic ontology. And the scripture says, and it's always variations on this theme, without a vision, the people, that means the people who are God's people, are perishing. Perishing doesn't mean they're dying and going to hell by the thousands. Perishing means they remain in the Adamic ontology under an enslaved will and try to please God with it because they don't have a vision. But what's the vision of? A universally saving Savior, a great God and Savior, That's the vision that we have to have. The lamb slain and standing, a risen Christ with universally saving significance. It's only in the light of that vision that we even live and live as God would have us live. Because in the light of the crucified Christ, the crucified God, we are constantly reminded by viewing him that the source of our justification was his faithfulness. And that our spiritual life is his faithfulness continuing in a group called the church. 
And in the church, there are people who are content to go to church to fulfill their duty and to go to church because they're supposed to go to church. But there's also those who go to be briefed for the apocalyptic war and go forward, marching forward in Philippians 1.27 as a group of citizen soldiers who understand that they've not only been gifted with faith, but gifted with the privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. Our general died on the battlefield. Why do we expect more? Why do we expect the praise of the populace? Jesus said, woe to you if you receive praise from all men, because so did the prophets of old that were false prophets. False prophets always got the applause. They, I would even say that the false prophets of old always got the megachurches. And I thank God every single day I live that I'm not the pastor of a mega church because pastors of mega churches have to become mayors and mayors are politicians and politicians are always currying people's favor. I couldn't give a damn about your favor over me or any favor of any man or of the favor of this generation. I'd rather prefer the opposition that comes from advancing on the bleeding edge of this gospel that shocks pastors into jumping backwards like one happened recently. Universal, whoa! We get away from that. Yeah, you might actually be struck with the kind of lightning that doesn't kill you but makes you alive. I've been struck with the lightning of God. It hasn't killed me, made me alive. But I have a slow heartbeat today. So the invading grace is what I like to call the universal impact of the cross of Christ. The universal impact of the cross of Christ, which I also call, if you want to get technical, instauration. The crucifixion of everything so that everything is raised in Christ. So we've been involved in the construction of a bridge in closing today. Say, what do you mean? You're closing already? Yes, I am. And the closing will take at least as long as the opening. As Richard Rembrandt said after saying, you must repent of your repentance. I said, man, if that's not a message to the church, I don't know what is. He then said, I will be like the prophet and stand upon my watch. And he met this watch because he was going to teach as long as he wanted to. And I was thinking, you can t- there's only one person I like better listening to at that conference with Richard Rembrandt, and that was his wife, Sabina. Sabina, she came up with this I guess a little babushka or whatever. She's a very petite woman. She came up to the stage and I thought, I don't want to listen to a woman preacher today. I started to walk out. She said two syllables and I sat down. I was forcibly seated down by God who is not a gentleman like gentlemen, but gentle like God. And I listened to her speak and the experience that she had under severe persecution and torture and separation from her husband and her loved ones. And I heard Richard and Sabina both speak about the greatest joy they had in their lives was preaching the gospel to their Russian soldier captives and torturers. That's, to me, a living expression of the gospel. So I don't know if they're both with the Lord now, but I'd have to say to Richard Wormbrandt, yeah, I liked your message, but I like your wives a lot better. She was good. So we're on the bleeding edge. 
Now, I'll probably say that enough so that that'll be an old metaphor. We'll have to think of something new then. But my sword today is drawing blood. I hope. We've been involved in the construction of a bridge between the unconditionality of grace, the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, and the universality of grace. The scholars I've been studying lately aren't yet prepared to say that this unconditional grace means ultimately universal grace. And I'm thinking, yeah, but you guys didn't really deal with the passages in which Paul says that outrightly without having to fight it out in the, in the arena. And that's why I say when he wrote Ephesians, and we'll call it Ephesians because we've been calling it Ephesians since the third or fourth century, but we know it's a letter to the Laodiceans, which was read by the Ephesians and by a lot of other people probably in Colossians 4.16. But when you go to Ephesians, you see this divine invasion happening. Paul hears about a church that was formed. And nothing, a church is nothing more than an addressable community of people who have been transferred into Christ. They're addressable now as a community because they're enabled to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. God, who sent his Son to redeem us from the curse of the law, sent his Spirit to make that liberation a daily living reality so that we cry with our lips, Abba, Father. Even as Paul said when he preaches the gospel, he says, This is Christ speaking in me. And you should test yourselves whether Christ is in you. And he is, of course. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote to a church that he had nothing to do with except God gave him authority over it because it was a church of pagans and God made him the apostle to the pagans, the Gentiles, in Galatians 2, 8, 9. He shook hands with Peter on it. There was a, the, back then, a handshake was all you needed. You didn't have to do 20 pages of contracts and all the rest of it. You shook hands. And he went to the pagans. Peter went to the Jews, the circumcision. So when Paul heard about a community, an addressable community that was formed in the hearing of the gospel by someone who planted it, He wrote to them, and he didn't have to deal with a false teacher like he did in Rome. He didn't have to deal with false teachers, Jewish Christian teachers, missionaries who were causing the three churches in Galatia to defect. So he didn't have to deal with the crisis of the teachers in Galatia. So when he wrote Ephesians, it's important that we recognize this. He wasn't dealing with any problems. He was just therefore giving them an immaculate, pristine, unrefined demonstration of the gospel and what happened to them when they were transferred into Christ. Please understand that faith is an important reality and that your and my exercise of it is an important reality, but that that faith that we call faith is not the means of our justification, but it's what was elicited at the hearing of the gospel. Faith comes it's elicited it's ignited as pastor brown's prayer said the human spirit is the candle of the lord it's the lord's candle not mine therefore he lights the wick not me it's his faithfulness it's the faithfulness of jesus christ the gospel 
heard elicits the faith. And that's why Paul said, when did you receive the spirit? When you did the works of the law or at the hearing or at the report that elicits faith? Faith being elicited by God is still part of his forward direction line of bringing the gospel forward. It's our shared existence with Christ. In fact, faith is a word for our shared existence with Christ who was faithful. And the Christian life wrapped up in a single phrase is a faith working by love in Galatians 5, 6. And it's the fruit that's produced as we walk in dependence upon the spirit, second divine mission. But I want to just hit this before we close. At the very outset of the account of the gospel in Ephesians, where Paul isn't dealing with false teaching, he does one thing. Later on, he talks about the power of grace. He talks about the power of love. In Ephesians 4.11, he says he gave some pastors and teachers and evangelists, apostles and prophets, the whole spectrum of communicative gifts for the purpose of the perfecting of the saints. The perfecting of the saints is nothing other than their perfection in love. For he who keeps the word in that person, the love of God is perfected. It's perfection in love because the responsibility that we all have as a church is wrapped up in a single sentence. You will love your neighbor as yourself. That law in one sentence was fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ's death on the cross, in his faithful death, in his faithfulness. That faithfulness continues in us and it is works into a love by which we serve one another. Mutual service, mutual encouragement. And then we go out into the world. We don't hide ourselves from it because we see all humankind as the target of God's redemption. We can be with all humankind without fearing that we're going to be contaminated. Now, so with that, Paul's account is he speaks of something that many of the scholars I've recently read don't even talk about because it's the mystery and they want to stay away from the mystery. Not all all scholars, and I don't mean the ones I've mentioned today, but they don't want to talk about the mystery. But Paul does an intentionality analysis of God. We've already seen in history and in medicine that there there used to be a thing called psychoanalysis. And that was Freudian and it came about and it really should go by the boards because it's part of the old age. But there's a better technique called intentionality analysis. And Paul did an intentionality analysis on God. And this is where he reveals the direction of the line always being divine. And all we did was get caught up in that forward divine action. That's the church. The church is the front line caught up in the divine action of the redemption of creation and all mankind. And so, in Ephesians 1, let's just, I just translated it again afresh, but let's look at it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because I wanted to be one when I grew up. Gotcha. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God. I like it. To the holy ones and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Please notice, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. The holy ones that are sanctified by God. This is one group, not two separate groups. Paul doesn't know this group well enough to divide them up into holy ones and faithful ones, like some are faithful and some are not. This is all one group. 
to the holy ones and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Do you realize what he's saying right there? The faithful in Christ Jesus are those who have a shared existence with Christ Jesus, participating in his faithfulness. He is the author and perfecter, not of our faith, but of faith, period. That's what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah. I'm going to skip over some things just to get to the heart of the matter. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a divine action. Who has blessed us? We're now participators in the blessing of Abraham, which is going to all the nations. He has blessed us. That's a divine action, friends. With all spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. Even as he has elected us. That's an unconditional election. If you want to talk in the tulip language of Calvinism. Total depravity, T. Unconditional election, U. Limited atonement, X that out, L. I, irresistible grace, yes it is, if we define it properly. And P, the perseverance of the saints, which I disagree with. Our salvation is a matter of the perseverance of Jesus Christ, which continues in the saints. The tulip of Calvin is partly right. It's an unconditional election. God elected us. He didn't say, oh, I'm a gentleman, so I'm going, I will not violate the will of Saul the persecutor who's killing Christians every day. I'm not going to invade his will. I want to call him as an apostle, but this has to be his own idea. He has to want to be. Now, God is not a gentleman like a man is a gentleman. God is gentle like God. He steps in. He has the right to step in to the orb of your will. That's why I'm saved. God stepped into the orb of my enslaved will. And my salvation means that now my will is free. I never had the choice before to walk by means of the spirit. Now I do. And not only do I have that choice, but the results of sowing to the spirit or walking in the spirit are fruit, harvest. And it's a harvest in connection with eternal life that we experience now and that we will experience as reward at the evaluation seat of Christ. So... I'm preaching. I still have a slow heartbeat. I can, it's just going boom, boom. But it looks like it's going boom, 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 doesn't it? Well, so I don't do one of those things. Another dead metaphor is this whole thing like this. People look at each other. That's dead. Forget it. Come on. Think of something original. How about this one? Slow heartbeat. Where am I? Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with spirit, all spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ even as he has chosen us in him before the creation of the universe. So where's your will there? Well, before the creation of the universe, I must have preexisted as a preexisting soul. Really? Are you a Gnostic? Which is my view is a know-nothing. No, before the creation of the world. Now, Paul has a run-on sentence here. It goes from 3 to 14, so I will go through this, but really quickly. Look, look at it. It says, even as he has chosen us in, in him, that's a divine action, in Christ before the creation of the universe to be holy and unblemished in his sight, in love. 
God so loved that he gave his son. Having predestined us or predestinated us, that's a divine action, to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, his intentionality, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. That beloved is my beloved son, Jesus Christ. In whom, Jesus Christ, we have the redemption that is through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, commensurate with the wealth of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. With that, he gave us wisdom and insight. And what's the insight all about? What does it mean that he gave us all kinds of insight? The insight is what he says in the next three verses. Having made known, that's a divine action. God makes it known. He reveals, he apocalyptics, he, apo- he apocalyptically reveals. It says, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure of his intention for the administration of the fullness of the ages. Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time to bring about this result in the fullness of the ages, which is to bring everything to its sum total in Christ to recapitulate tapanta in Christ. The word anakephaliao means to bring certain things to their totality. Creation screams out because it hasn't been brought to its totality. It's in an injured potentiality. It is in a severely injured, radical incapacity. And so are we in the Adamic ontology. But God's plan is to bring everything, not some things, not certain things, but everything, tapanta, into its sum total so that it doesn't scream out any longer in, what it, in its injured potentiality. It comes to the full fruition of God's created and redeemed intent in Christ. Everything does. Everybody does. We're at the bleeding edge of this forward action of God. We aren't acting for God. God is acting in us. We're caught up in his divine invasion of this creation. And we're announcing the victory of Jesus Christ. Eventually, well, what's happening here? His intention to bring everything to its sum total That's a divine action in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth. Just in case you're wondering how universal this message is. In whom we have obtained the inheritance, having been predestinated, that's God's action, in accordance with the purpose of him who affects everything according to the now stronger word than will is determination, bulema, to the determination of his intention. And that's what Lou Martin was all about when he said that God's purpose is to be an advocate intent on the liberation of the entire race of human beings and all creation for that matter. In whom also you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also believed, or we could say became faithful, meaning with a shared participation 
in him, in Christ's fidelity. That's what he's talking about. That's part of the divine forward line. We're caught up in it. In whom you also believed or became faithful by a participation in his fidelity, having been sealed. That's a divine action by him with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire actual possession of it to the praise of his glory. So without having to deal with the teacher as he did in Romans or the teachers as he did in Galatians, he's just telling them right on the target without any controversy just what happened to them and just what God's will is. God's unconditional grace swept them up into Christ and God's unconditional grace is destined to be universal as he sweeps everything into Christ. And as he says later, as Christ fills up everything with himself, and as he says in another passage, we're going to hit very soon in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God becomes all in all because God who is pleased to dwell in his son is pleased to dwell in everything that his son filled up with himself. So God will be all in all. That's the final picture. That's the bridge. And we're building it here because I don't see it built. I see guys over here teaching unconditional grace. I see guys over here teaching universal grace. I think it's my job to build a bridge between the two. If it's unconditional election, like Calvin rightly said, if it is irresistible grace, like Calvin rightly said, if we understand that God invades the orb of our enslaved volition, then God doesn't just do that for some people and leave the rest to a destiny of eternal damnation. He does it for everybody. Amen. You're dismissed.